Welcome to Dangerous Policy. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And Dangerous Policy is a platform aimed at intelligent people where we discuss important issues facing life and society. How are you, Crispin? I'm excellent, thank you. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, all things considered, they, we've been going through these oh my Groundhog Day lockdowns, uh, which are just insane. Sydney has had a major outbreak, yeah. which is spreading over the country, um, creating a lot of you know closed borders. It's very strange for us in Australia because... Uh, within the constitution, it's been questionable whether or not you know states can actually close their borders. Mm. That the high court judged that they can for public health reasons, mm. but has never happened before in Australia's history. Yeah, uh, it is so weird. It's really strange because uh, we got the new Delta variant coming to Australia, and then the states were starting to shut down. <laughs> <laughs> like one state after the other, and we're like, what is going on? So, although it's probably been fewer videos from our perspective because we do this all the time, like it's actually been a few weeks <laughs> since we've actually sat down and done a week in review <laughs> because of all these new restrictions and like mask wearing and yeah. Yes. Non positive note, I got my first jab. Yay! How'd you feel? How how was the experience of getting well, it felt like a disaster film, actually, oh, yeah. like because it was an industrial scale injection program. Like mm-hmm. they just had us coming through hundreds at a time. Uh, you go sit, you go gradually move to the front of the queue. Yeah. You would get checked in and everything. A nurse would jab you, send you straight out. Uh, it was a very, um, you know, inspired kind of process. Like it was, it was very quick, mm. uh, but. I tell you, it was <laughs> you could have you could have filmed that and just used it as beeline footage for any kind of horror film, you know, zombie apocalypse movie, because it was just heaps of people winding up and getting stabbed in the arm and moving along. Hmm. Um, you know, it was like that Chernobyl television series I saw where you know they just grab everyone and do something. It's it's it, that that kind of collectivized effort. Mm-hmm through the implementation of a government program is not something I have seen outside of authoritarian countries before. Yeah. So uh, that was a new experience uh, here in Australia. But no, the, the injection went fine. I felt no symptoms. Mm-hmm. Next one is uh, in a couple more weeks. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that was Bison. And you go juice box at the end. So, I mean, I was all there for the juice box. Like- yes. <laughs> yes, yes. But I was trying to reduce the sugar, so I uh, just carried out. This is my sugar-free Red Bull, uh, which... <laughs> The, the colour is worse, but the taste is, I actually think, is better than the regular Red Bull. Mm. Um, it doesn't have that sort of sticky taste on your teeth, so I like that. Yeah. Um, what about you? How have you been? How have I been? Well, yeah. Well, like, we never actually discussed this, but, like, I'm now part of the public sector <laughs> in a way, and it's interesting. I've like, reflected on the videos that you've... Um, we've swapped out, yes. <laughs> yeah, we have swapped out. Like, you've just come kind of rogue and do your poker thing, whereas I'm going to be, like, a very contributive official... <laughs> And my goodness, there's just some things that um, has really struck out to me just in general, right? It's just like how much utopia (laughs) there is. So there's a ABC television program called Utopia. Australian ABC, not the American ABC. Oh, yes, there's two different. Yeah, Australian ABC. And it really highlights, I guess, things that are just very unique to the public sector, things that you would not see like discussions that would never be had. Um, so they're the uh, Australia's building oh, nation, nation building Australia. And they're just so focused on like all these little things that don't matter, but are quite 
<laughs> it's just astounding. I was like, goodness. And there were some days at work where I'm kind of like, well, am I part of Utopia right now? Yes. Yeah, so so there are... Because of all the governance structures, right? Because you're appointed this and that and then all these processes happen and then things get convoluted and, yeah. Uh, you, you really understand what it becomes, what it means to become a public servant. And there are some great satirization of it. So <sighs> Utopia, uh, the same people who created Hollow Men where they mm. basically act as senior government officials. Uh, there's, of course, Yes Minister and yeah. Yes Prime Minister from the 1980s. Now, uh, in the 1980s, when Yes Minister came out, this was a famous television show. I'll, I'll introduce it to you after this. It's you know this short segment, so it won't take much time. Uh, but it had a massive influence on the British structure because mm. it brought home to ministers in such a dramatic and hilarious way how much they were controlled by their public officials mm. that it led to a revolution in the 1980s. So Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister of Britain, you know, the most infamous Prime Minister of the 20th century, yeah. where she completely reformed everything, well, her, her whole, you know, so-called new public sector management of tearing apart these mega departments and having them all compete with one another, that was to break the back of these public servants who, mm. uh, through this television pro show, had had shown uh, just how much they dominated the way that the British government operated. Mm. Um, so these shows can have a real impact, and that's why public servants, senior public servants in particular, do fear them. So uh, when Hollow Men, which was made by the same people as Utopia, mm. came out, a lot of senior public officials really disliked it. It cut very close to the bone <laughs> and they were worried as to uh, what what response might uh, might come because if the public sees this, if this is seen yeah. as a genuine window into the way public officials operate, then the public could get behind some major reform. And if the public mm. and the politicians are on the same size, then yeah. uh, the public officials don't have much of a, much of a chance. Oh, there was just one episode that just makes me laugh so much was mm -hmm. how they wanted to build a park or they just announced it. It's like, let's build a park and then yep. a, a garden, a garden. And they had like right next to this apartment block they were building. And they're like, there's no space. It's like, oh, there's one five Ks away. <laughs> we need to go investigate. And <laughs> they go there to go screen the place. They're like, why do you want to come here? <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't grow stuff. It's like, oh, what if we do this? You can't. And then you have to do like report and then another report and another report. Oh, it's just, oh, it's amazing. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> um, but at the same day, like everybody that I've worked with, like, are there for the common good. Like, we are not there like Utopia. It's just, it's a satire, of course. Um, but it's, yeah, there's just certain quirks of like, oh, like, makes me. Well, in a, in a space of 18 months, we've come full circle on public service in Australia. So when the mm. pandemic first hit, uh, even the conservative media, even even the most private sector, like, you know, driven uh, people who for years had been complaining about bloated bureaucracy, public servants on the public purse, do nothing, government officials with their two-hour lunch breaks and so on, mm. they all shut up. Uh, and the Conservative government in Australia came out and praised just how lucky Australia was to have such dedicated and effective public servants in the way in which we just crushed the pandemic. And that held up for a good year. Like people all of a sudden looked at 
um, public servants through different lands as people who are, you know, dedicated, selfless servants who are willing to work long hours when everyone else is sort of stuck in lockdown to make sure that everybody's safe and that we pull through this pandemic and that the economy recovers and all of that until the vaccine rollout. Oh, when yeah. the vaccine rollout just became, I mean, we've had former prime minister already come out publicly and say, and I, and although I have many disagreements with this guy on many issues, this one I have to agree with, that this has been the greatest failure of public administration in Australia's mm. modern history, right? We are at the back of the pack in terms of vaccine rollout. Mm. Uh, yes, there are supply issues, but they should have been foreseen. There were, there were clear uh, evidential roadblocks. I would have thought there'd be some sort of projections made. Well, I mean, they have one job, right? Yeah. Like the, the greatest national priority is to make sure that the society is vaccinated mm. because we are the country with the least amount of natural immunity. I think because we just became complacent, right? Like they're mm. like, oh, there's no rush. Like it's fine. Like even if we don't, if we get, if the last country to be vaccinated, that's okay because we have no COVID here. Mm. Then we realise that this COVID, <laughs> COVID kept mutating and now we have Delta and now I've realised oh, damn, like, what are we going to do now? <laughs> it was it was folly to mm. think that. I mean, the, in many ways... But the thing is, right, government works, like, moves so slow. Like, this is very fast for government to move. Like, I don't think they're used to this pace, and I think mm. that's where it fell apart. Yes, I, that's true. I mean, I remember, because I was still in government when the pandemic hit, mm. and for the first time we didn't have to go through like two years of approval processes for things. Like we were just told to take the money and make things happen. Uh, and at least in my world, the money was directed to people that were able to make things happen. They, these are, you know, people mm. are just skilled in that way. Uh, and thus the public had a newfound respect uh, because the government was doing something at a, at a speed that only the private sector was thought to be able to do. Yeah. and yet was doing it at least as well. I mean, the, there are so much risk aversion in the public sector because of the public accountability. Let's say mm. you're given a million dollars, right? Yeah. which is many years' salary, many, many years' salary to do something. Mm. Now, that million dollars isn't that much money in the context of government, right? But a million dollars is a million dollars. Mm. And if you are found to have invested it in a way where it doesn't work out, mm. you can be considered a total failure for that. You've, you could be accused of squandering taxpayer money, yeah. bring the, the government to disrepute, mm. um, cause ministers to lose their offices. And so the, the great incentive is to do nothing, okay, mm. where... Uh, if you do nothing, well, at least you're not going to be on the front page, right? Yeah. Like journalists don't write about do nothing bureaucrats. They write about public waste and, and public malfeasance. Mm. Uh, but in the private sector, let's say you're a part of a huge company that makes billions a year and mm. you burn a million dollars on something and it doesn't work, no one cares, right? As long as the money was spent logically mm. that people thought that there was a good chance to get a return, and let's say you you um, spend $10 million on 10 different projects and six of them work really well and four of them don't, yeah. nobody cares. People will look at that as an overall success, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas in the, in the public sector, that's not the case. People look at things discreetly 
Uh, and thus, that's why you need to go through ridiculous tender processes. Okay, we want to get this review. It's going to cost two hundred thousand mm. dollars. We're going to get fifteen different people to give us a proposal. Mm. Uh, we're going to go through a tender evaluation process. Now, some of this makes sense because you don't want to be um, uh, cheating with public money. You don't want people who have conflicts of interest or you know profit from particular contracts yeah. to exploit their public position to enrich themselves and their friends. Mm. So that degree of probity makes sense. Whereas in the private sector, it's more about the bottom line. People are, you know, are, are more likely to cut those corners. Yeah. Uh, so some of those delays make sense. But then a lot of it is to, to defend the decision right mm -hmm. like oh we didn't work well we went through this massive process you can see all the evaluations you can see that this group had the best proposal it wasn't our fault that it didn't work out xyz happened we couldn't have foreseen it it's to protect the reputations of the people involved mm -hmm. and that leads to desperate inefficiency so much money is spent to protect people like a lot of the wasted money is in the prepare preparation of spending money um and so yep. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, but we have we have those checks and balances. Yeah, but it is it is a lot about reputation because if when things go wrong, things can go wrong. Um, mm. Especially if we deal with certain groups of people that you you need to have stakeholders on your side in order to cooperate. Otherwise, it, it, once there's distrust within the government, then it kind of all falls apart. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. It's so hard. Like sometimes I just like bang my head against the wall. I'm like, why can't we just do this quickly? Because like, as I listen to you, like that, that happening in the, the private sector, being like, oh, like, no, this makes a mistake. That's okay. Like, move on. Hmm. I was like, wow, my mind is blown because <laughs> I'm so conditioned to like having this process must be done. Then we go to this. And what if they question this? Okay. We must do this whole block of work because it makes sure we cover ours. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then all the stakeholders. I mean, if you're uh if you're a business and let's say, you know, a group of a particular type of retailers are upset because you've changed your business model in such mm. a way that uh it's more efficient for you to sell a particular product, well, they you, the business doesn't care, right? They yeah. like they, if there's some kind of reputational risk there, uh there's some sort of goodwill benefit or whatever, the business might throw a bone. But like generally speaking, they're going to go with whatever's the most profitable option. Yeah. Whereas in the government, uh, you have a, a range of stakeholders. If you upset a large chunk of stakeholders, that's you know communities, that's politics, that's society. Mm -hmm. uh, your interests are much broader mm -hmm. than you know delivering like more efficient defibrillators to ambulances, mm -hmm. right? Like you've got a various things you got to consider. Uh, and that can really impact the way you do things. But in order to go out there and consult and find all of that information, that takes time. That takes, you know, to anticipate how people are going to react to things. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, private sector is much more about asking forgiveness than permission. That's for sure. Mm. Uh, so, and also just the, uh, the first thing, and I've mentioned this before, the first thing I was ever told when entering the public service by, by a departmental secretary, they said, uh, you know, in Crispin, in in the private sector, you can do anything in the world, anything you like, unless there is a law that says you can't do that thing. Okay, mm. in the public sector, you can't do anything. You're empowered to do nothing, unless you can cite a piece of legislation that says you can do it. Okay, mm. uh, and that um, 
And that is the difference between the public and private sector mindset. It's, it's, it's not a, you're not coming from a position of empowerment. And there's nothing sadder than watching these bright young people who, who come through university I mean, <laughs> every single year. It's the same group of grads, right? Who just, who are beady eyed and thinking about, you know, the policy change that they're going to, you know, in, in, in print to, to change the world for the better. Uh, and then they get into the reality of the public sector. Mm. And, so many either drop out or just psychologically collapse. So they're, they're, they're being crushed under the weight of bureaucracy and the way things really work. Uh, and what well, actually made me also reflect on like my role, like my, my mindset in terms of like my job versus my life. Like I think a lot of people try to put all their purpose in the work that they do rather than look at their life holistically. So, like, yeah, initially I was that grad. I was that grad that was bitty eyed and like, oh my God, I'm going to make so much change working for government. You know, it's being part of something that's so contributive. And then realize that, yeah, the bureaucracy, there's a lot of things that need to go up the chain um, in order for things to happen. And it kind of goes like this. And then sometimes just like, okay, it's not priority right now. This is the priority. <laughs> just move. <laughs> We're just kind of like, ah, I've done all this work. Okay, the drop, um, which is just the nature of the work. But it's more so made me realize that, you know, I've got to work and things that are in my control. So outside of work, that's where I know I can make things happen. Like you shared that story of your friend picking up cooking <laughs> when they worked for the public sector. Yeah, so um, I, had a, I had a friend who uh, was a grad and yeah. got their dream job at the public sector. And a year in, they're like, you know, Crispin, I make sure that I cook dinner every night. Like I, I've gotten to cooking, so I feel like I can achieve something in a day. Uh, it was a really depressing thing to hear, but but not at all unusual. Uh, I think what we need to do is, uh, I might do in a future video, is like do a sort of a quadrant of, of what makes a good public servant long term. Mm. Uh, because uh, there are people who remain idealistic and drive positive change, but just can't deal with the bureaucracy, the politics, the the grinding kind of you know issues that deflect from priorities and so on. Yeah, uh, and they get burnt out, they get despondent, they might even get suicidal, uh, and they will find something else to do mm. with their lives. So they will stop being a public servant. Then there are people that uh, become just completely jaded, totally cynical. Uh, they've lost all motivation for the public good. They they come in, they do the minimum each day, mm. um, which isn't a lot in the public sector. Like you can get away with just skating quite easily. Uh, and they, they start thinking about other aspects of their lives that, that give them value and, and merit. So mm. they stay with the public, secu the, um, the public service because of the security, because of the salary, because of the stable kind of mm. hours, uh, work-life balance, able to raise family but they focus on other areas of their lives and mm. they, they put in their reports and, and that's it. Then you've got people who are what I would say probably careerists who um, have worked out the way the system works, work mm. out what it takes to become, you know, uh, like a, a rapid rising kind of public servant. Mm. Uh, and they, I would say, like the arch implementers, like people who... Um, can work the bureaucracy, work the stakeholders, manage up really well, uh, but they don't tend to be necessarily very well liked by people. They're not necessarily particularly um, uh, impactful. 
but they're just really good at, at being institutionalized. They understand the Mandarin aspect of the public sector. Uh, and then there is a very rare breed mm. who, rare breed. very rare breed, because they, they're, they're, they're contradictory traits. <clears throat> These are not things that sit very well together. Mm-hmm. People who always have the public good in the back of their mind but can separate that from the bureaucracy with which in they work, right? And these are people that have the talent of the careerists, i.e. they understand the way the bureaucracy works, the art of the possible versus the you know idealistic and so forth, mm-hmm. and can, through careful you know, playing the cards that they have, deliver public outcomes yeah. that are good for the community. Mm-hmm. These are very rare i've had the privilege of working for a few of them mm. uh and it, it, there's but they are rare they are the rarest group people who are very intelligent mm. uh and they, they just follow kind of the machiavellian dictum if you know one should always strive for good but know how to to implement evil if they need to and that you know applying that to the public services you know that they they're working for the the ultimate good uh but they have to work and wheel and deal and do the compromises of the public sector, which um, is is culturally and ethnically mm. countervails to that outcome. So. Yeah. Is there any way to be unmentored in that way? If if that is seems if that seems to drive the most change? Oh I wouldn't say that. No, I think everyone does can play a part in it in some way. Like I think it's leadership driven. Yeah. You know, okay. If if, uh, if you've got people in the senior executive roles mm-hmm. who are always thinking outside the box, uh, then you can do it. Like mm-hmm. it requires people to think about the ultimate end game. Um, yeah. Like let's say the the government of the day says you will implement this program aimed at suicide prevention, right? Yeah. And you. Like a careerist would implement that program really well. They would think of like how to cover themselves in in the event of anything going wrong, uh, to be able to get all the different paperwork and things lined up, to make sure all the the people who uh, might be resistant to the program are, are brought on board, um, and they implement that program. and And the government taps them on the head and say, "Program delivered, well done." Um, whereas the the truly great public official will, of course, faithfully implement the government's program. Mm. But at the same time, think very hard about what the government really wants to achieve by this program. What's mm. the political imperative? What's the public um, you know, outcome imperative? What's yeah. the, uh, you know, the community benefit imperative? And work towards that and know where they can tinker with things to make that mm. outcome a reality without changing the integrity necessarily of what's being done yeah. to be able to continue to give credit to the government you know the politicians who are who have announced it, mm. and still work things in a way to get around problems in such a way that the, the public ultimately benefits. Mm. That's a very complicated set of skills and requires someone to have not lost the same idealism they came into with when, when they were graduate, mm-hmm. um, but after decades of bureaucracy, still being able to to work with that bureaucracy yeah. and have that drive and motivation that's a it's just a rare talent and it, and it really is the thing that separates the uh, public servant from you know the ceo the public sector the private sector kind of enterprising types 
Yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen public officials that have been successful have very strong relationships with a lot of people beyond government. Like they just have relationships everywhere. And I find that the projects that have been most successful is sustainability, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, being able to tinker with all these different factors in place and who's affected and getting them, get others to also champion the same thing rather than it being one stagnant line end game. Um, it's actually a lot bigger. Enough about work. It's over. it's the weekend. Well, sure, sure. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just provide one little tidbit of advice to all the, the budding public servants out there. Aside from writing, which is just a skill everyone must have, mm. your objective in order to advance yourself in, in the public service is whoever your boss is, whoever it is you report to, your job in life is to make them look good, okay? And I don't mean this in a virus way. Like, this is this is really important, okay? It means that you have to be across, like, in your little bit of work, all the questions that your boss is likely to be asked by their bosses or by their minister, mm. right? Um, so you have to be able to have them well-briefed, answer those questions so that they feel properly supported by you, Okay. Uh, and the more trust you have in mm. the public service by the people you report to, the more empowered you will be to make decisions of your own. Okay, yeah. uh, so just keep that in mind, and uh, and it's it's a currency that you know you only squander if you have to. <laughs> now let's go from one end of being absolutely sanitized to the other end. You talked about all in London. <laughs> Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And I had no idea. Okay. My background, I used to be really into this K-pop community um, a long time ago. Uh, and that was, for those K-pop lovers, it was probably the peak of Shiny and Girls' Generation where I was like, this is like my people. And then I kind of fell out of love with it just because I saw it affect the aesthetics affected who I felt I was. <laughs> like I wanted to become them in terms of like the way they look, to how they dance, how talented they were. I just felt less and less worthy in, in full respect. So I kind of like, okay, I've just got to remove myself. Like it's just not for me because mm. there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, pressure into looking a certain way, being a certain body weight, being white, having the big eyes, all these kind of different aesthetics. How many, how many white K-pop stars are there? They're all white. Like, they're all... Or, I mean... Oh, you mean Asian white. Asian like white, white. Yeah, no, no, Asian white. There are different types of white people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Asian white. Like, as white as you can try to get yourself. Like, they bleach their skin. There's all these products. And I'm not even joking. Like, that is no, a no, thing. No, no, I know you're right. Like, um, so, so for those that, uh, that aren't familiar, I did a segment, you know, a week and a half ago, a week ago, on uh, Ollie London, who is someone that has transitioned... So you know how people go through sex transitions and things like that? Yeah. Has transitioned from being white British yeah. to Korean. And they have had 18 operations to do it. Yeah. And uh, they have, you know, calling themselves transracial and they want to be treated as as Korean. I think Jimin, I think, is the name that uh, yeah. is adopted. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's what we're talking about here. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I 100% know the audience knows what, who these K-pop stars are like. BTS is one of the biggest um, K-pop groups. Like they have basically, it's it's quite weird because I never really imagined that K-pop would go mainstream as much as like that Gangnam Style video did. Yeah, I know, I know that one. Like, uh, 
the, the Gangnam Style. Yeah, 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 the Gangnam Style. Like, but like BTS is like that, but on steroids. Like they are mainstream now. They are like on the line of Justin Bieber and all those main people that are on. So, and it's incredible. So they're basically hailed as like, um, and they should be. I mean, their music is quite good, but like it's quite. That video really did challenge me in terms of the the whole um, intersectionality question. You know, can you change your race like you can change your gender? Like how, you know, and it, and it kind of got me angry a bit because when I saw, when I was, as I was editing the videos, I was like, hmm, like it, everything is so, how to say, um, there's such a double standard with this argument as I kind of delved into it uh, with the graph intersectionality that if you can, you know, these uh, extreme on the left, the left extremists say that we will accept you for who you are, especially if you don't believe you're in, you're in the wrong body. If you believe you're in the wrong body, how the way you dress, we will not criticize you. The way you, um, the way you call yourself will not criticize you because we understand we, mm. and we want you to feel included. Uh, you're welcome in our group. But then the very same people want you to say, I'm transracial. We want to criticize you for the way you look and the way you present to the world. Um, we don't want to accept you based on your own DNA and where you've grown up in. And you deserve to basically be canceled. It just doesn't add up in my head. Well, that is a very, uh, that's because you have critical thinking skills and can analyze a situation with a, with a process of logic. I mean, there's a few things I'd say. First, this Ollie London character uh, is clearly sincere. This is person. This is not a person who's doing it for attention. This person has spent 150,000 US dollars, uh, speaks Korean, lives in Korea, uh, and has genuine identity crisis. Mm. And when they explain why they've done this, it's articulated well for exactly the reason you've described. You know, I identify as Korean. I feel this way. I feel like this is my people, and I'm you know adopting as much of those traits as I can, so as I can feel more like myself. Mm. Now, this is against my own ideology. When I was uh, looking, you know, sort of the history of, of the gay movement, for example, uh, in the 1970s when homosexuality was sort of becoming a, like a, a thing mm -hmm. where people talked about it uh, and it was, but it was still kind of really out there. It was still seen as something very unusual, even though, of course, it was just in the closet. Uh, and then there was this famous movie, which you should watch, called Dog Day Afternoon, where... Uh, Al Pacino, a young Al Pacino, uh, holds up a bank. This is a, it's a, it's a bank robber's hostage film, right? Okay. And he holds up a bank because he's trying to make raise money for his boyfriend's sex change operation, right? Because his boyfriend is uh, has said, "Look, I've been born in the wrong body." Mm. Now that phrase, which I heard throughout my childhood, when people were asking, you know, you know, mum, dad, why are people gay? Blah blah blah. Like they would say, "Oh, some people are born in the wrong body." And I've never been comfortable with that phrase. Even as a kid, I was like, why do they have to be born in the wrong body? Why can't they just be attracted to people of the same sex and be born in the body they're born into? That seems more logical. Uh, and, and I never got a satisfactory answer out of the adults for that. I was like, 
you know, why, why is it necessary the case that your entire body is incorrect just because you have a personal predilection? Mm. Uh, and so, for example, uh, there are gay people that I know who are effeminate and male and, and you know, they, they otherwise like they do a lot of feminine things mm. and they're gay, uh, but they're definitely male. Mm. And there are guys who are like men's men, right? These are, these are like really into their masculinity, really macho, mm. but are also gay, right? Yeah. I would never, you know, like, and they'll, they'll speak with a really low voice and make, you know, sexist jokes and things like that. Uh, and they just happen to be attracted to, to people of the same sex. So I've never accepted the argument that people are born in the wrong body, right? Because there is no, it implies inherent in that statement. Uh, there's like a, a right a, body. A, a right body, yeah. Like there's, there is a, there's some kind of guiding hand where you're all in a machinery factory on a factory line built to specifications. And if you're sitting outside of those specifications, it's not just a, a variation, it's a defect. Yeah. Uh, and I've never accepted that. So the whole trans ideology is something that I struggle with because I think it's based on a on a cognitive uh, defect, mm. cognitive failure, right? Mm. Um, but that said, if we accept the logic of the transgender movement, yeah. then you must accept transracialism. In fact, transracialism is easier. Is much easier because uh, sex chromosomes exist in every cell in the human body, whereas yeah. we're talking just just melanin in in, in the yeah. outer surface of your of one organ. And right? then where like that, the chance of where you are born in the world, like that is. And you can get a new passport, really, mm. if you jump through the hoops enough. And yeah. And like, so the question then becomes why would the transgender activists not accept transracialism? Why, why, why is it that they say you can change your sex but not your race? Critical race theory. <laughs> in, in a word, yes. Uh, because according to this ideology, you divide every person based on their immutable characteristics, except for their sex, mm. uh, into oppressors and oppressed. Right? Yeah. So if you're a cisgender, white, heterosexual male, you're an, the oppressor. And that the entire world has been one colonial mm. narrative in which everything has been adopted to suit your oppressors, sustaining your oppressing ways. Mm. And according to this ideology, you, if you don't accept the ideology, this is circular logic, if you don't accept the ideology, one of two things is true. Either you are an oppressor and you're benefiting from the status quo and you don't want things to change, mm. or you've been so absorbed in this sort of water that we're swimming in every day that you don't notice it because you've internalized your victimhood and oppression. And it's up to the enlightened, usually white, kind of coastally US educated people to enlighten everybody to the oppression that they are actually suffering, even if they don't feel it or experience it. Mm. So when people transracialize themselves, particularly if it's from an oppressor to the oppressed, oppressed it's not accepted. It's considered cultural appropriation. So Rachel Deleuzel, who was, you know, a white mm. woman who identified as black, or in the case of, uh, you know, uh, Ollie, who sort of, did a weird sidestep and has only partially been criticised uh, for going from you know British to Korean. Mm. Uh, that if they accept that logic, mm. then their entire critical race intersectionality narrative dissolves. Oh, absolutely. Um, and what I'm looking forward to 
is when someone who is uh, you know, racially black or some kind of oppressed group mm. decides to be transracial and becomes sort of a white person and how the transgender lobby would react to that change. Because if someone's going from an oppressed group to an oppressor group, mm. then they might be uh, cheered on and stunning and brave. I actually think that if if it had started out that way, if the whole transracial thing started out with people who were black going to white rather than the other way around, mm. uh, we might have had a different approach. Things are really kind of happening. Like it is already happening in some cultures. Like being white is valued in some cultures as beauty. Like it, people are bleaching their skin, but they're not. But I guess it's just not seen as cultural appropriation actually at all. Well, yes, and but you won't convince these activists that, no. that this is like what, what what they would say is that colonial beauty standards of where oh my goodness <laughs> have been imposed upon the subcontinent in India and Asia. And therefore, the only reason people—I mean, the geishas—no, they, they never existed before, like <laughs> b- before white people came along. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and I mean, the, 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 yeah. it's insane. Yeah. It's just insane. But going by the internal logic of the argument, mm. there is nothing wrong with what Ollie Jimin, uh, his name, uh, has done. Mm. Okay, uh, it makes perfect sense, and they have articulated and defended themselves well on mm. that basis. So. And what made me really mm. shocked, I guess, looking at these two stories, these two people, um, is just how society has reacted mm. so much differently. It's it's kind of funny um, looking back at the tweets um, and just, you know, the uh, commentary around Rachel is that people are way nicer, way nicer like they kind of gave her the benefit of the doubt that she just doesn't know like and really wanted to help her mm. whereas nowadays it's kind of black and white like it's very much no like, like pun intended no yeah yeah no pun intended but it's very much like no it's either or kind of this there is no room for discussion like it was it was just bizarre i guess and it's it's kind of a reflection of where we're heading towards is that we're heading towards a society where it's become more divided, there's less conversations to be had and people who want to challenge, come up with challenging ideas are basically drowned out um, and, and dehumanised uh, in such a way that, I don't know, it's it, it's very dark <laughs> the way I think about it. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, perhaps I'll, I'll curse myself for this, but I think it's I'm a bit more optimistic than that uh, because... The reason why these people are so visceral towards Ollie is that uh, what Ollie has done is exactly as you like observed is completely logical. Now, if they accept that argument, mm. then they have to contend with the dissolving of their their critical race and narrative. So they can't do that. So their so their response, their their visceral personal attacks have been not based in the logic of the argument, but based in, uh, you know, I can't accept you saying this, right? Because it's heresy and I can't afford for Galileo to point the fact that we are actually revolving around the sun and not the other way around. I I just think language Um, has become so much more violent. (laughs) But but, but this is positive. This is actually a positive step because 
there are plenty of people on the left, people who are supporters of the transgender kind of lobby who support Ollie and mm. say, yes, this is logical. This is a logical extension. And so there's an internal conflict among that group, yeah. which I actually think is very good for us because it means that, <laughs> you know, there's people, there are people. I'm starting to well, think. Well, well, there are people that have critical thinking skills, yeah. right? Um, who who support transgenderism and then is forced to confront the logic of that what they're trying to propose, mm. uh, but also it, it it just means that um, when people are left with nothing but how they feel about a subject, their identity is tied to a particular political ideology, yeah, uh, and that ideology has has just dissolved in front of them, mm. uh, then. Ultimately, there is room for truth to prevail. That it, it actually took. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a turning point. You can always kind of, you know, overblow a particular event. But I do think cases like Ollie's, where people have, through sheer sincerity, you know, imposed enormous costs upon themselves to do something, mm. which I think is, you know, illogical, but within the context of their own ideology is consistent, there is mm -hmm. method to the madness, mm -hmm. uh, does reveal um, some inner truths about the way in which we all are. And, and I hope that uh, as a consequence of that, we will start to see a shift, that people will start to wake up from this. Um, and also on a, on a grassroots level, people are pushing back against critical race theory and so on. Like uh, previously, people were just too afraid to speak out like they'd be worried about their jobs you know if they're putting to yeah. um uh, or just get yelled at be like you need to educate yourself yeah like, you, oh. your whiteness your privilege or whatever and um, i'm apparently in a person now so <laughs> well yeah I, I, asians feel Asian, oppressed asians lost their their um Asians lost their oppressed status in the CRT intersectional ideology the moment it was revealed that Asians earn more than white people on average in, in the United States. Mm. Uh, Asians earn more than anyone else, in fact. Um, and the reason for that is very high work ethic and high levels of intelligence. Oh, you don't think it's the colour of my skin and the colour of my hair and the, my eyes? <laughs> no, no, it's your colonial history. You know how the Malaysians conquered the world and established <laughs> colonies in Southeast Asia and how we all speak Malaysian because of, of their cultural dominance, that's mm, why. Mm, yeah, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but actually what really um, stood out to me in that video as well is just like use me as an example, and I loved that picture. Oh my goodness! So, how actually it is unique to Western culture is that we don't associate the way we look to the country we're born in. Like in terms of you know, mm. I can be Australian, and yes, I'm Australian, and it doesn't seem strange. And then I could also be British <laughs> as well, and American, and people wouldn't do a double take and they just accept me for who I am, and yet. In Eastern countries, um, it doesn't work like that. You, yeah. If you are born in China as a quote-unquote white person, you are still classified as a foreigner. People mm. will still call you a foreigner. Mm. White Gordon is what they'll say. Um, they'll say what? Uh, ghost. <laughs> ghost man. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. I like that. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I mean, because I mean, like nasty ways, but yeah, white people are ghosts. Oh, okay, so there's, there, there, there are negative derivations. Yeah, there are negative um, connotations. Well, well, if they insult you, you can just call yourself a poltergeist and punch them in the face. A, uh, a poltergeist. A poltergeist. It's a form of ghost that can interact with objects. So you know when you see those movies that like all the drawers and doors. Oh are yeah, yeah. Stuff? Yeah, that's a poltergeist. The poltergeist is a ghost uh, that can interact uh, with the real world, right? Oh, so, okay. So you're just like I'm a poltergeist, yeah, and then punch. Them. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that's. <laughs> But it, it it's really fascinating. It is really fascinating that it is a something unique to Western culture. Like you mm. wouldn't see that in our Asian countries. And I guess you commented it's be the dominant society, but is that really it? Is that really the reason? Well, like, first of all, I too love that image. I, I kind of outdid myself there, so I'm sure we'll pop it up there. Yeah, uh, so yeah. You Sha- spent a Charlene, lot of time on it. Uh, who who um. Mr. Calling as a as a you know, <laughs> surrogate of the Queen's English. I'm sure she would have been a, made a better um, uh, Duchess of, of Sussex than um, Meghan Markle. <laughs> um, so the uh, it's yeah. So what she's referring to is that if you are like a someone who becomes British, like I said in the video, mm. and you're of Asian descent, well, to become British, you you don't go through a series of operations to look like an Anglo-Saxon, no. you get the, the citizenship, you get the passports, and you introduce yourself as British, and thereafter everyone will accept you as And British. you learn the language. Yeah, it learn the language. Uh, and if, if someone, like, asks you, you know, well, what's your family background, you might provide an ancestry mm. kind of lineage, but no one will introduce you as you know the foreigner like they'll introduce mm. you as oh she's from you know um cornwall or whatever mm. uh so that is not the case in in asia um where or, or in the case of as as reflected in what ollie has done like ollie mm. looked like an anglo brit and went through a series of cosmetic interventions to be accepted as asian looking right yeah. uh in order to be Korean. He, and, he, and when you, you listen to Ollie speak, they're not saying, oh, I'm uh, I'm Korean, like I'm Asian, so mm-hmm. I'm Korean, right? So Asian would be, there is there is a kind of a racial profile, you know, say on those little drop-down boxes, mm-hmm. what race are you, Caucasian, you know, African, whatever, uh, and then Asian is on that list, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Ollie's not saying that. Ollie's saying a nationality, Korean. Mm-hmm. So... Inheriting that is the implication that in order for you to be accepted as a particular nationality in East Asia, you need to look the part. Mm. Uh, and certainly in the case of Japan, that, that would be very strong. You know, 99% of the population, you made to Japanese. So homogenous is their society that they have blood type racism um, where people are biasing mm. against each other, not on their race, but on the blood type that they have. That's you crazy. Know? Uh, and... Uh, you know the Han Chinese, the uh, the Indians, like all all of this does have a ethnic mix. Now, if you ask the question, what's the cause of that? Uh, I would say that there's only been an approximation in nationhood in East Asia. So we had the Thirty Years' War, sort of sixteen eighteen to sixteen forty eight, where the Protestants, the Catholics, the Calvinists were all at war with one another. Uh, yeah. And at the end of that bloody conflict, by far the greatest conflict in Europe before World War I, um, the 
solution was that we would have a nation state where you would have a government and they might be of a particular view, disposition, but they had territory and their role was to serve the people of that territory, right? Yeah. Um, and the people of that territory could be of a various mix. They mm. could be multi-ethnic, multilingual, uh, and it didn't really matter, okay? Like all, all they had to do was agree that they were a particular nation. Mm. Uh, whereas in the case of East Asia, that never that never happened. What you had was civilizations emerging, so mm. the, the Han civilization, the, the various dynasty, the Chosun Koreans, you know. Um, and as a consequence of that, what, what they shared was language, blood ties, uh, civilizational narratives and history, yeah. and they kind of just drew borders around that. So it's much more ethnically aligned. And even those countries that were colonially impacted, so Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, like these were you know, Dutch colonies, Portuguese colonies, uh, French colonies, mm-hmm. and when they were decolonized, when they had mm-hmm. nationalist movements, the political system that emerged was usually along ethnic lines. So yeah. um, Malaysia is a great example where, yes, it's a sort of a democracy. You've got many different parties, but those parties often represent ethnic interests. You've got the party that represents the Chinese Malays, the party that represents the Indian Malays. Yeah. Um, and so they adopt a, a more ethnic identity separate to sort of national identity. Whereas in uh, the United States, Britain, Australia, uh, your national identity is, is separate to your race, essentially. Uh, interesting in the case of Australia, because um, until the 1970s, we had the white Australia policy. There was a concerted yeah. effort to maintain um, a racial dominance. But the motivation for that, I would argue, hypothesis here, I need more research, but the motivation for that is not to preserve the colour of one's skin, but to preserve the culture and tradition. Like at the time, we were a European society marooned on this massive territory on the edge of Asia, the most populous centre of the world, mm-hmm. wildly different standards of living. In 1910, Australia had the number one living standard in the world, the highest income per capita of any country, right? Uh, and uh, compared to, you know, the, the masses of poverty that existed all throughout the Asian Pacific region, right? So there was a grave fear that the the Asiatic hordes would just take over and we would lose all this territory, right? I mean, we already has no territory. <laughs> yes, but, but 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 that but that's but, but no, you actually make a very insightful point there, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. So we adopted this strict immigration program that you had to be white from Europe, preferably from from Britain, if not Britain, then Ireland, if not from yeah. Ireland, then the Mediterranean after the war. Um, and we incorporated all of those elements really well, right? So after the war, you had the Italians and the Greeks. My father's side came to Australia then. Uh, that's when you got the cafe. That's when we got all the great coffee, you know, all of that all of that emerged. Australian's coffee is like number one. Oh, saying. easy. Easy number one. It's the only country in the world in which Starbucks failed. We'll do a video on that. <laughs> um, so, the, uh, so all of those elements were incorporated really well. Uh, and... Mm. Uh, then in the 1970s, the white Australia policy was dropped. But by that stage, the European culture was entrenched. The dominant culture was entrenched. Right. Um, so now 8%, so a decent percentage, 8 or 9%, it's like nearly 10% of the population is of Chinese heritage. Okay. 
Now, there's a, sort of a national security question because we're like, oh, you know, the Chinese government tries to control Chinese diaspora anywhere in the world and having 10% of your population Chinese question over loyalties and things like that. I don't have that anxiety because there is a, a culture in Australia that is the dominant culture that the Asians themselves have embraced, right? Mm. So one of the things that makes us really successful as an immigrant culture mm. is that in the space of one's home or in the space of one's private social circles, the preservation of traditional culture is alive and well. So if you're in a Jewish household, you're in Hanukkah and things like that, mm. you'll experience a really Jewish you know, thing, right? Yeah. If you're an Italian household, you'll be making the pastas and everything. Uh, if if you are, um, you know, in a, in a uh, Asian household, no shoes in the house, please. Yes. But you're going to eat all the food. It's on the table. It's all shared. You might not understand what my parents say, but that's okay. <laughs> exactly. There is. There'll be. You know, the Chinese New Year is very big here. Like all all of that stuff. And then there is those those space that are shared with the dominant culture. So you mm. know, you have the Indian Diwali where everyone's suddenly Indian for a day. Like mm. the, we have those shared cultural things, but. But sitting on top of that in public, there is a dominant culture, an Australian culture, that all of these different cultures participate in and share, mm. okay? And, yeah. they, and they have buy into that. So whatever the, the evils of a white Australia policy, it was successful in entrenching this, this unique amalgamation of Anglo-Celtic culture, which is the dominant culture, which instead of being changed through immigration, mm. has been adopted. And and so I, I genuinely believe that immigration has been a great thing for Australia. Um, that doesn't mean to say that I think more immigration is always better or more diversity is always better. I think there is a calibration. But uh, but but to date, to, to, to modern Australia, it's been, it's been fantastic. Um, but that's because we don't have a racial underpinning of what it means to be Australian. Just as there isn't a racial underpinning of what it means to be American. In British case is a unique case because uh, that the indigenous culture mm. is also the dominant culture, yeah. um, which is not true for Australia or the United States. Yeah. So, so maybe there's like really difficult, it's really difficult to understand when somebody rejects their own culture to adopt another rather than just, you know, embrace a different culture, blend it in with your own culture. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's also why Britain has a much tougher time. Um, I mean, in part because the sort of Islamic terrorism yeah. is much closer to their borders than it has been for us. Like we've only had one or two incidents, whereas they've had many, you know, Manchester bombings, knife crime, all that sort of tragic stuff. Everything that's happened in France. Uh, and like a, a lack of acceptance of British culture. A lot of people look down on the so-called gammon or the little Englanders. Mm. Um which really upsets me because the, that is the that's the indigenous culture. What you're actually doing is bringing in colonial culture to to from other parts of the world. Whereas here in Australia, we've got a dominant culture that's entrenched, but we are flexible in that. None of us are the are the indigenous peoples, right? Yeah. You know, except for the indigenous peoples. Um, and so when something is added and adapted, it it's not seen with the same kind of anxiety as it is probably in the UK. Uh, also because we haven't had the violence. Um, I think that's a big, big factor. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'll wrap this up with something mm -hmm. fun. I want to hear, how's the book going? What's, what's going on with your goals? And also, 
about, you know, that fat shaming video you did a couple of months. How's that going? Okay. So when, when Charlene refers to fun, uh, she doesn't necessarily mean collective fun. Oh, fun for me. Definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, just... okay. Well, we'll start with it with the fat thing first. So, uh, we are now at the three month mark mm-hmm. and, uh, I have failed miserably. Um, but but the reason for that was there were a couple of trips in the three-month period that really rallied. So the first month was amazing, worked perfectly well, was overshooting. And then uh, I went to the WPT and I was you know, in holiday mood and I was with lots of people I hadn't seen in a long time. So, and, you know, first time we get to travel out of the state. So mm. food was just in abundance, uh, as was drinking. And also went camping uh, with friends. Uh, and this is a, when we go camping, we're not thinking about food. We're just thinking about enjoying ourselves. So And drinking. And drinking. And then, and then I came back and, and it took me a while to get back on the, on the horse. So, so that really railroaded me. However, uh, during that period of time, I kind of learned what works and what doesn't work. Mm. Uh, and so I am very much on the wagon again. And mm. I am confident that second time around we will we will get there so watch this space what have you learned about this experience in terms of i guess your habits towards food your attitudes towards food Um, uh well environment is key environment is key yeah control your environment so if you're if you know you're going to be in a situation where uh food is like you're not particularly controlled with food um, bring your own sort of health of the options and things so you can snack on those instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, try to minimize those things in your calendar diary in the first place, of course. Uh, any food that you have in your house, um, make sure you, you remove anything that's bad. So is that when you're getting like that urge, you don't just pick it up and, and eat it mindlessly. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm, a, I'm someone that just will eat whatever's there. So... Uh, Portion sizes is like a huge thing for me. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was trained from a young age to eat whatever's ever on my plate. And so I just do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would never like leave food really normally unless it was like a unique circumstance in a restaurant where it's just massive. Um, Or, uh, and also like just making sure that that I plan things ahead of time. Planning, yeah. Because otherwise it's, if you if you just buy food when you're hungry, <laughs> then, then then your priorities are skewed, right? Mm. Uh, so not being sort of slave to um, my particular urge in, in that moment, um, but actually having thought about it ahead of time, and mm. and also being really laser focused on the goals, like laser focused because it's just like the short term gain is so immediate and so seemingly innocuous and the long-term like gain is really tedious. It feels uncertain. Like you don't know whether you're going to reach those goals or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't realize how much things might be derailed if you, you know, let things slide. And also consistency is king. Like mm. just, just habit. Consistency um, and habit. Um, so, yeah, but I, look, I'm, I'm confident that, like yeah. as I said, three months of, of learning and now another three months of getting there, but I, I, I have no excuses. Like we, we, I should have done it in those three months. I will do it in these three months. Yeah, yeah. No, I only wanted to ask you that to highlight a point that no place fun. Fun. of where <laughs> it is supposed to be fun. It's Charlie. It's fun. Um, 
I wanted to highlight in like all those tips, nowhere did you say fat shaming really helps me. Oh no, look, fat shaming is important. Like fat, if it wasn't, no, no, no. I mean, I, I say this. But you didn't say it. Like you didn't actually say like, oh, uh, and also the people who told me I really should lose weight. No, no, no but, but your question didn't reflect that. Right, like but the, I just want to see was, whether it was coming nah, up in front no, no, no. of mine. I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel like this has been a nah, yeah, nah, yeah. Because, because if you were super important, you would have said it first, or even the top three. No, 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 no. Because you, you, you weren't asking me what is my motivation to succeed. No, right? but it's part with, of it. With, no, like, no, 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 no. You were saying what have I learned it. over the last few? Yeah, months? what have you learned? Was, and what have I learned about wasn't failure. part of it. Like people's criticisms weren't part of it. No, because I'd already known that. It wasn't something I learned in the last few months. Like, I made a whole video about that. There's something I already knew. Like, mm. I already I already knew about the fat shaming thing. Like, you asked me what I had learned. It would have been particularly... But you were consistency extremely, is king. Yes, but it would have been really odd had I said I learned about fat shaming and the benefits thereof in the last three months. If I'd done a whole video about it a few months beforehand. But what I'm getting at is that... It... I would have thought in the last three months it would have validated. I would have thought in the last three months it would validate that point. That oh, it does. Point. Absolutely, it does. Because, so who has fat shamed you in the last three months? That's myself. Really myself. Absolutely. No, no one has. No one has come out and said, "You know, you're a fat bastard." Blah blah blah. Um, but that's what you encourage people to do in the last video. I, no, I do. I mean, I, look, I don't. I don't mean random people in the street or when it's places that are socially inappropriate or. Or you're not doing it to put them down. Mm. You're doing it to remind them of like what they could be. I mean, I I have no time for the fat phobic argument, right? Mm. Nobody is happier being overweight, right? Let's be clear about that. Everybody is happier, mental health, social health, uh, you know, living life when they're in a in a in their perfect weight range uh, with a high degree of physical like health and acumen and exercise, um, they are much happier people 100% of the time. Not, not you know, 80%, 100% of the time. And beyond that, your actual health outcomes are huge. You, you, it's enormous the impact that it has on the whole of society, on your immediate family. If you get mm. diabetes, if you uh, have heart disease, uh, if you live a sedentary lifestyle and develop all kinds of depression and anxiety and, and struggles, like if you're if you've got children and you're trying to keep up with them, like this is this is a catastrophe. Mm. And so everybody should be shamed, not in a, not in a way that demeans your value as a human being, but shows that you should be respecting yourself to live up to the value that you are intrinsically like worth. Right? You deserve. You are a good enough person to be living a healthy life, right? Uh, mm. And that's why I get upset with myself if I don't achieve those goals. I look in the mirror and I'm like, you're an idiot. You deserve to be better than this and you are better than this. And mm. your, your choices that you are making where you fall short of these objectives is something that you should be ashamed of. And that's not in a way that makes me kind of closed off in a box and you know under my covers don't want to mm. deal with it, but with a renewed determination to... Mm reach those goals in the future to realize the, the person that as I see myself inside. So, um, I, and I say this to any other person, like, you know, don't, you should not be proud of being overweight and it's not the rest of society's fault because they don't love you for being, you know, obese. Like if you're not being approached in the street for how beautiful you are, 
uh, when you are, you know, 30 kilos overweight, um, that's because you should probably lose weight. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just more so like in the frame of it's not a strategy that people use every day of their lives of True. looking in the mirror and being like, you are ugly, you are fat, you're going to be better than this. Like it's, it doesn't seem like a strategy. It seems like you should focus, channel all that energy into, oh, what kind of diet do I want to try at this time? Oh, I'll try this. I'll try that. Oh, this didn't work. That that works a bit more. Okay. Oh, what are they doing over there? I want to join this exercise club. I want to meet new friends. Like it's a holistic thing. It's not this one single attitude of I need to be better. I need to fit in this BMI range as much as I can. Like it's there's just so many other things that people can focus on. And you have, you have in these last three months, you focus on so many different things. I mean, yes, you probably wake up, and but I really doubt you wake up in the mirror every day and be like, you are fat, you are ugly, you need to change. Like, do you really do that? Uh, yes. If, if, if I, I mean, not, not like, no, no, no. If, if I have kept to the diet rigidly and my exercise regime the previous day, yeah, I wake up and I'm like, I'm working towards achieving my goal, so I don't feel that way. But if I have overeaten, if I have, like, had too much to drink, uh, if I promised myself I would do something but didn't do it, then I do have a strong critical voice in my head when I wake Mm. up the following day and be like, you know, you're a disgrace, right? Mm. Um, And and this is – I don't have a problem with that. Mm. Um, The – uh, but I but I would agree with with one point you made is that it's not a strategy. It's not it's, it's not like when you go okay here is my goal and I need to make these changes to happen. That is not a diet plan. Like you know shame is not a diet plan. That's, That's true, saying. right? Yeah. Uh, so it's not, and you shouldn't feel a sense of shame. Like like I've just articulated, you shouldn't feel bad about yourself if you're working towards the goals. There's one thing that I. Um, it's one thing to to shame people who are not looking after themselves. But if someone is like overweight and is at the gym mm. or is, you know, eating a salad or like you're, they're clearly going through the process of making a lifestyle change to improve their lives, mm. then that definitely shouldn't be shamed. That should be praised. That should be supported. That should be encouraged. You should get people involved in, and mm. make that socially kind of, um, you know, approved. Uh because even if someone, it's like the, the as um, I think it, it might have been Roosevelt or, or someone once said, uh, it's not a it's not a problem to be poor in life. It's a problem to not try and better your lot. Then now, economically, I think that's a questionable argument. But but in terms of your physical health, I think it makes a lot of sense. There's nothing wrong with being in a place where you're unhealthy. Mm. It's a problem accepting that as the status quo. And so if, you're, if you are working towards improving your physical health, even if you're not there yet, it's the process that needs to be praised. Yeah. Um, and uh, just, just to kind of round that point off, when we talk about stories, when we talk about movies and narrative and great things, the great stories aren't where someone starts off of being perfect and they continue to be perfect throughout the mm-hmm. entire film and then they're suddenly even more perfect at the end and the only thing that was holding them back were all these other people that were less perfect than them who are envious or whatever. No, 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 no. What makes a great story is that someone starts out in a terrible place in their lives, right? You know, they're going through divorce. They're like, you know, they're under a pile of trash that they live in, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been fired from their job, not because of anything, but just because they've just done a terrible job. Uh, they're, They're not 
washing their clothes properly, people who are just a mess, right? Mm. And because of a series of things that happen during the course of their story, they overcome their personal demons and challenges and emerge as a stronger, greater person mm. at the end. That, that story arc, that hero's journey, that's the kind of story people like, right? Yeah. Uh, and you should like that too. You should see those things that are wrong with you right now that could be better and you work on those things. And, and the process of working on those things, try, try, try again. My last few months was a failure. My next few months will be less of a failure. Uh, and uh, and eventually, hopefully in three months, but maybe beyond that, yeah. you know, I'll turn around and say, look, smashed it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, fair enough, <laughs> fair enough. No, again, like it's just um, I'll definitely keep him accountable, guys. So I'm not backtracking on the fat shaming thing. <laughs> not so. back over the fat shaming thing, but I'm glad you agree. But it's not a strategy. So. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I guess I gives me opportunity on my goals. So I've been learning mm -hmm. Chinese. Yes, uh, and I agree. The things I've learned in the last three months is consistency is king. And you really, yeah, you really don't know your progress, especially with learning a language that, again, it's really hard to measure. Like you, you might remember like 10 words today, then forget all 10 words tomorrow and then remember it next week. So I've, I've had little wins here and there, um, being able to talk to my parents a bit more, uh, being quicker in comprehension. But then I think my expectations are so high that I get frustrated at myself that I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm just still responding very with basic words. Um, but yeah, I think it is going there. And I agree that, um, have forming a habit so i sit on the train to go to work every single day and once i sit on the train that's my cue to get on my phone and study new words <laughs> like and and revise new words and all i'm just like and the thing is we have to wear masks lately so i've been able to mouth out the words <laughs> and not look like a weirdo <laughs> um as i'm memorizing my words uh which has been great and um and one thing i've really also learned is you just need to really enjoy the process if you want to make some change like i remember when the stage this was like way back but when i told you about that keto diet mm. and i was like i want to lose five kilos and you know what this keto diet is the way i'm going to do it and it worked it absolutely worked but once um the competition ended with my brothers so i was competing against who could lose the most weight um, I went back to my normal diet because it was not sustainable. I was, mm. even though I was five kilos lighter, I was the most unhappiest I've ever been in my entire life. And I mean, I could quote unquote be healthier, but mentally I was not healthy. Mm. Um, and then, so like applying that same concept to language learning is that I'm enjoying the process. Sure. Like I'm not going to learn it in like three months, but every day I get new joy of like learning. Oh yeah. I remember that word today. And then this word. And then, I was just telling you, like, when I went to the petrol station and drive my car, I got out and I was like, oh, chio, and I put <laughs> in the petrol. <laughs> chio is petrol um, or gas, wherever you're yeah, from. Yeah, you strange Americans. Yeah, you strange Americans. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just like the little thing um, that I just notice around me, um, which I'm like, oh, wow, it's just so much joy just learning um, uh, and continual learning. So, yeah, like, we'll see. We'll see how we go. I don't know again how to measure it but do i want to like is a good well, question it's like, look it's it's a really great endeavor to undertake i mean mandarin is not an easy language uh, and learning a language in general is mm. really tough a lot of people like to promise they'll learn a language or think that they will uh very few people put in the time and, and it really pain. requires discipline it does uh so so all power to you i, I really hope that uh you keep with it and and Look, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll be able to eavesdrop on your parents in no time. Oh, my God.
much. Yeah. Mm. I know. I went on the train. I was on the train the other day and there was this child and um, this mum and the child started crying. So the mum propped her up and sat next to an ad and started pointing to the picture and just explaining. And it was, I think she was a two-year-old, but I could understand. And I was like, oh my gosh, her head just like a two-year-old. <laughs> so yeah, maybe one day I could eavesdrop on someone a little bit older. <laughs> but yeah, like, oh. Anyway, um, I don't know about this time or whether we just wrap it up. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think we're good now. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up for now. Or... Oh, okay, yeah. Any questions, any feedback, uh, please leave them down below. My mum who watches our channel is like joking that this has come a month in review, but, um, you know, we're always here um, to chat and everything. But, yeah, have you got any other? Uh, so the next week, in, I mean, just for those people that have left a lot of comments on our uh, nuclear uh, Astrobiots power plant video. Yeah. Um, I'll, we'll definitely hit that in our weekend review next week mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we definitely want to talk about it. A lot of people left some great comments. Uh, there are other things I want to talk about with Lithuania and so on. So we'll, we'll address that in the next weekend review. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the point. Mm -hmm. All right. Have, stay safe and mm -hmm. ciao for now. <laughs>